Hi everyone, I'm Sarah Gleason and this is Unmuted by Mosaic. Hello, it's Friday, March 24th, and we're talking about purity culture and the purity movement. I want to start by taking a deep breath together. Even though it may seem silly, I think this can be a contentious issue and one that still creates conflict at our university and in our personal relationships. Gender and sexuality is such an intimate experience and it can be difficult to wrestle with it in open ways like this. So if you are listening to this, thank you for joining me and our expert guest and thank you for being willing to engage in a conversation that is not super easy. In this episode, yes, we talk about sex and sexuality, but as our guest explains, purity culture is actually more about the underlying message that we are either pure or impure and how there's no in-between allowed. There's no multiplicity of stories allowed. Before we dive right in, I want to make one quick announcement that there is conversation around sexual assault in this episode. So if that is something that's not helpful for you to hear, Please exit out of this episode and listen to a past one. All right, let's meet our guest, Linda. My name is Linda K. Klein, and I'm the author of Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free, a subtitle that says a lot. (laughs) And I am also a um, religious deconstruction and purity culture recovery coach. And I'm the founder of a nonprofit called Break Free Together that supports people who are in religious deconstruction, particularly uh, around gender and sexuality, to find one another and find the sources of support that they need. How would you define what purity culture or the purity movement is? Yeah, I'm actually appreciative that you pulled those apart because I define them differently. Uh, When most people are referring to purity culture, what they mean is what I call the purity movement. So the purity movement, we'll start there, uh, is a movement that was born out of the white American evangelical Christian church, particularly starting in the early 1990s, um, and that was curbed around 2008. And it was heavily subsidized and um, supported by federal funding for abstinence only before marriage education, which was really big at the time. So you might think of purity culture or the purity movement and think about things like purity rings and purity pledges and purity balls and all of these other things that ended up being, um, you know, a huge part of not only evangelical life, but, you know, we had Disney stars who were wearing purity rings. We had um, people around the world who were taking purity pledges. You know, this was a significant, large movement. The purity culture, however, is a culture that predated the movement and that post-dates the movement, if you will. Um, You can still find it in evangelical churches. You can still find it in lots of other communities because I would define purity culture as any culture that defines people in their totality as either pure or impure or whatever word works for that community, Um, good or bad, worthy or unworthy, honorable or unhonorable, you know, you name it, based on other people's perceptions of their gender and their sexuality. 
So there are a lot of cultures, religious and otherwise, out there that do exactly that. Uh, in fact, you know, in Islam, the word is honor culture. We often talk about people's, are you honorable, right? We hear that kind of language. In the Church of Latter-day Saints, the word is worthiness, you know, but oftentimes we're talking about the same thing, right? It's just different language for different communities that are defining people by their gender and sexual performance. Yeah, that's interesting. It's not just evangelical Christianity that has these values. It's it's a lot of different cultures and religions as well. Yeah. And yeah, and exactly to your point, not just religions, you know, including secular cultures. We often see, um, you know, a lot of the same purity teachings in other cultures as well. So I know that the purity culture affected a lot of women who grew up in the 90s. So I'm really curious what your perspective is on maybe how purity culture affects people who are college aged today, even though they weren't a part of that original 90s movement. Yeah, like I said, purity culture has been around for a very long time and it definitely exists today. So it's, it's you know, the purity movement was just this highly visible, highly well-funded movement that took purity culture and blew it up to to a size that everyone in the world could see right Mm -hmm. you know so the sneaky ways are actually the majority of the ways in which purity culture is communicated and when i say sneaky ways what i mean is a lot of what we learn in a culture is not stated outright you know there there are things that are outright teachings, right, that we actually learn and have language around that, or metaphors or stories around that really haunt us. But the majority of the things that we pick up in purity culture, we pick up via watching how other people are treated, um, watching how we ourselves treated, uh, hearing how people are talked about, you know, again, you know, I brought up stories and metaphors. There are some aspects of stories that aren't stated outright, but you hear a certain thing baked into a story over and over again, and you message, even if it's not said, just the consistency of the ways in which stories are formed over and over again. You only hear that story or that story communicates a message to you. So, you know, these subtle things are actually the things that make it most deeply because explicitly you can actually determine, do I agree with that explicit statement or not? When you're communicating things implicitly, um, you don't even notice that you're learning them, <laughs> you know, realize that you're picking it up, um, you know, in reality. Again, to go back to this example that you used, um, you know, in reality, the multiplicity of stories out there about people's lives and choices that they've made and happiness in marriage, you know, or life are actually countless. There are not only reality; there are endless versions of reality. And there are only two versions that were allowed to be presented, though. They're not those full fundamentally aside, because nothing, you know, is easy or, or complicated when it comes to relationship. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, you know, the, the only versions that were allowed were the versions that 
taught what they want you to version that said, here's what, um, here's what leads to a happy, healthy life. And here's what leads to abandonment, abuse, being um, cheated on, being all of these other things, right? Uh, and so you have people who end up coming out of, you know, growing up and not even noticing that they learned these things. And then one day, you know, they start to function in their lives. And all of a sudden they're like, well, gosh, why am I expecting that, you know, my is going to leave me all? Why am I um, terrified that I don't deserve him and therefore he's going to, he goes on this trip, you know, because God is going to take him from me because deep down, I feel like I'm not good enough. I wasn't perfect. I wasn't totally pure. You know, we maybe had sex, you know, before we married or what it was that, or I, you know, and then offer just a warning. I, you know, my type of consultants you know for a lot of folks you know even having been assaulted they're like well I am now impure right and in, in people get this terrible life right so that's what I'm destined that's what I deserve right you know so there are these deep ways in which it starts to these teachings and the shaping that we've received growing up start to show up when it show up is when we start to go like oh wait a minute, why do I think that way? Why can't I stop having these behaviors? Why can't I, you know, be sexual with my, with my marital partner? Why can't I, um, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and, and that's when people start to potentially, not everyone, but start to potentially start to say, maybe I learned some things that I need to look back at and, and, you know, question, question, what exactly was it that I learned? And does it or does not align with what my experience is of the of life of God of, of my relationship, and so on and so forth. Hmm. So when someone starts to step back and kind of evaluate, maybe a feeling that leads them to questioning how they were brought up in the stories that they were told how can they differentiate between feeling shame or ashamed and guilt or are those different and like might they be leading to different conclusions about whether or not the story you were told feels correct to you or feels right to you yeah well I will say shame and guilt are incredibly different um now we use the um, when you're talking about the real clinical definitions of shame and guilt, they're very, very different. And they, you know, are experienced and impact us in very different ways. So research will often say this, so perhaps you have heard this before, but guilt is feeling did something bad. People think that I did something bad. And shame is the feeling I am thing bad people think that I am something bad mm-hmm. when you look at culture over and over again it uses the language of shame you are pure or you are pure especially if you're a girl or a woman right you are 
um, you know, destined for a healthy, happy life and marriage, or you are destined to be alone and abandoned, right? Mm -hmm. You are worthy or worthless. You are Christian or you are non-Christian. You are saved or you are unsaved, right? You know, these are languages, these, these are terms that define somebody in their totality, right? Um, and, you know, the way that people are impacted by this feeling of shame, by this feeling that people think I am something bad or, um, or I even believe that I am something is to disconnect, you know, and research has shown this over and over again. When we feel that shame, which may come from consistently being shamed over and over and over again, or growing up in a shaming culture, or even simply some people are more prone to experience shame than others. Um, you know, we do one of four things. Um, we either distance ourselves from others by appearing, uh, right? We distance ourselves from others by focusing on ourselves. Such a terrible person. You must become such a terrible person. And what I'm doing right now, you can't see my face, but what I'm doing right now is I've got my head down and I'm looking at my chest and I'm pointing at myself, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a guy I can look at you while I'm doing that. Right? Another way that we can distance, um, you know, when we're experiencing shame is we can lash out at someone else. This is all your fault. You did this, right? Um, you know, another way is that we can actually keep secrets or the people who live kind of multiple lives, right? You know, they're one person space and then they have a whole other life that people don't know about where they're, you know, doing the things that that space doesn't allow. Um, and, you know, and these four reactions to shame, what they're all about is trying to keep other people from seeing the thing about you that you believe they'll think or even you think makes you fundamentally bad, right? Worthless, impure, destined for hell, whatever it may be. Now, guilt, on the other hand, having done something, right, um, is generally speaking described as a moral emotion. That is to say, it makes us want to be better, right? So if someone um, says, if someone lies and someone says, you're a liar, that's just who you are, right? You're always lying, you're a liar, right? You might have a shame reaction, right? Or even if no one says anything, but you have a feeling of fire. People all think I'm a lot, right? You might have a shame reaction. However, if someone says, you know, man, I is inconsistent with who I am, right? I'm not somebody who believes in lying. And I did that, right? Now I want to reach out and repair. I'm going to reach to you and apologize to you. I want to reach out to myself. I don't want to, I want to be somebody who doesn't live in alignment with her values right i'm gonna you know be honest right so the that is to say you know guilt can lead to this reparative connective response and it leads to leads to this isolating um you know uh, disconnected response okay so we kind of know what the purity movement is and how it's working to shame people i want to touch on like who created the shaming and what's the point like who's benefiting from this system yeah yeah 
I mean, I love that you say who's benefiting. It's such a fantastic question that we should all be asking ourselves constantly <laughs> when we're interacting in the world that has been shaped around us that we sometimes just think is the way that it is. And it's, you know, much of it constructed. Um, and, you know, the question who's benefiting is usually who constructed it, right? Mm-hmm. Or who's working to maintain it. Um, and, you know, the people who, you know, are working to maintain purity culture, you know, generally speaking, are the people who are benefiting from it. Um, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's the people who are in power, um, whose power that, you know, purity culture would teach us not to question, um, you know, and I'm, am partially talking about men, right? Um, because, you know, we're talking about a system, purity culture is a deeply gendered set of teachings, right? In fact, the basis of purity culture is not sex and sexuality, but gender. Um, just think about how differently, um, you know, sex and sexuality are talked about according to the gender binary that's presented. Um, but, you know, there are also, you know, people who are benefiting from being, uh, you know, awarded the uh, proximity to the leader, right? Um, you know, so sometimes there are people who, you know, they're never going to be the number one in purity culture because they're a woman, for example, um, but they get to be the number two, the good woman, right? The pure woman, right? Um, they get to have proximity to the top. Um, you know, so there's, you know, there's a lot implicated here, right? But, you know, whenever we have systems that are being propagated, they're, you know, it's the people who are benefiting from the system who are often propagating the system, not always. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a rule of thumb. So Linda works in the field of dismantling purity culture. But inevitably, purity culture is a way in which many people still function and see the world. Maybe you who are listening right now see the world that way. So I asked Linda, how do we engage with each other when we come from different viewpoints and opinions? Yeah, I mean, listen, purity culture takes away your right to choice, um, your right to your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own perspectives on a lot of different issues, not just sexuality, but certainly sexuality in the mix. Um, and the last thing that I would ever want to do is do that again. Um, so I, you will never catch me, you know, telling someone who prescribes their purity culture that they're, that they're, you know, certainly a young person who's just trying to get by, you know what I mean? As opposed to, you know, a leader, um, you know, telling them you're wrong, right. You know, a much healthier, um, way for us all to be considering what we what might actually be most healthy for us, which is to say, you know, why do you believe what you believe? You mm-hmm. know, really why? Like not, not, um, you know, please, you know, do not give me the Bible verse that, that you were taught to memorize on this, right. Mm-hmm. Or the metaphor of, about being a princess or whatever else that you were taught to memorize, right. Why do you believe this? You know, and, and I think the more that we can ask one another real genuine questions um, and really sit in a non-judgmental way with one another's responses, you know, which, which is a powerful thing to do. If we can really authentically answer these questions, 
and then have someone sit and honor that authenticity. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how we all begin to understand one another, you know, not just on this topic, but in general, but it's also how we reach the healthiest conclusions, you know, um, you know, if someone can question you into, into per, your own perspective sometimes, or listen you into speech, if you will, <laughs> right? Um, you know, this is how we, this is how we really start to formulate authentic thought, um, as opposed to, you know, thought that we think is ours, but, you know, is, is perhaps, um, was taught to us and we've memorized it, but, um, but it may not be authentically ours. Um, and, and it's how we learn from one another and grow and change, you know? Um, so, you know, and this is how, this is, this is how our society, you know, would benefit from functioning in every area right so if you all can pull it off on your campus (laughs) right these like courageous conversations if you will you know these authentic honest conversations these non-judgmental non-shaming like really truly help me understand who you are and what you believe questions um you know you can lead the way for the for the next generation in a big way yeah I th- yeah, I think it's interesting that you say non-shaming conversations too, because even if, you know, you're coming to a conversation with someone who you might not agree with, obviously you don't want to re-shame them in some other way for for what they believe if it's different from you. So Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Shaming shaming is not helpful, period. Right? None of us should be using the language of shaming or using yeah, any of that, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it actually, you know, it will, it will isolate people further from one another. Um, so yeah. And the research is very clear on that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, in an ideal world from your perspective, how would you like for the church to talk about sexuality? Yeah. Well, I, uh, am a big fan of values-based sexuality education. Um, you know, one of the ways that I sometimes describe this that I think is, is, um, can be helpful is, uh, a, um, exoskeleton versus an endoskeleton, right? (laughs) So, you know, an exoskeleton is kind of that external skeleton, um, that some animals have that's like a shell, right? And then, you know, the body lives within that kind of exoskeleton and a lot of, uh, sexual ethics and certainly the purity ethic fit into this exoskeleton model, right? There are a set of rules and everything that is within those rules is good and everything that is outside of those rules is bad. And, you know, it's a it's a pretty simplistic model that um, that does not speak to a lot of different things and causes problems in the process. For example, Um, you know, the exoskeleton of purity culture, uh, doesn't say anything about, you know, sexual assault. And so what we learn is, you know, um, sexual experience before marriage is bad. Sexual experience in marriage is good, right? That's the exoskeleton that we've been handed. What about, um, sexual assault and rape in the marriage bed? Well, I guess it's good because that's the exoskeleton we've been given, right? 
what about, um, you know, sexual assault and rape, you know, outside of the marriage bed? Well, I guess the person's bad, even if they're a survivor, right? Because that's the only, that's the only uh, narrative that we've been given. It's, so these exoskeleton models are, um, are, are overly simplistic and can cause a lot of problems. Um, an endoskeleton is a more, you know, the kind of skeleton that often is for a more complex creature, like a human being. Um, you know, we have a spine, right? You know, that, that can bend and move and change. And when we're here, we can bend forward. And when we're there, we can bend back. And when we're here, we can bend to the right and, you know, and be able to stretch and grow and change and function. And, you know, the reality is that life requires that kind of endoskeleton. And, you know, the a values-based sexuality education model would be kind of a spinal cord, if you will, of values. What do we really value? You know, um, you know there's a really great model that I love called Our Whole Lives um, that is a sexuality education model that names particular values um, like equality or justice or so on and so forth. Um, but also, you know, we can name our own values with the right support, um, you know, the things that we stand by. And then you you make decisions in life, right? Which includes sexuality because sexuality is a part of life. It's not a distinct little separate category that gets its own rules, right? It's a part of life, right? You know, then we can use these values to make our decisions, right? Okay, let me look at this scenario. Is this okay or not? Okay, well, first let's look at the context, okay? And now let's look at this question through the lens of my first value, equality, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in this dynamic, are, are, you know, are the parties equal? Um, is anyone being coerced? Is anyone being, you know, shamed? Is anyone being, right? You know, like there's all these things that can come into play that can help us to determine what decision is right for us in that moment, given that, that specific circumstance, right? So it's deeply thoughtful. It's deeply reflective. Reflective. It can even be deeply religious, right? You know, like we can stand by our most valuable religious values. You know, because um, there are some tremendous values that 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 we can hold on to, you know, and make decisions by. Um, but it also gives us the flexibility to function and to be able to um, to to complex or to navigate complex situations. I know that a lot of the purity movement was focused, as you've mentioned, on these gender binaries and just a broader ideal of dualism. But obviously, there's people who don't fit into that. So how might the purity movement have or is affecting men, non-binary folks and people within the queer community? Yeah. Well, let me take this piece by piece, right? Um so, well, let's start with men. I think that one of the things that is worth naming that has been said for many, many, many years is that the patriarchy hurts us all. Um, nobody gets off scot-free. You know, I talked earlier about, you know, the those who are benefiting, you know, but, you know, sometimes these benefits that we're paying attention to, you know, that's just one set of experiences. Um, you know, there are also ways that men are being harmed, even if they're benefiting from the system, right? For example, um, you know, like I said, the 
the gender the gendered teachings are the base of the sexuality teachings, which means that um, that men are expected to be a very particular definition of man, and they're expected to you know to be a very sexually hungry person. If they're not right, then they feel like there's something wrong with them. If they are not able to then be such a strong by stereotypical definition of the term manly noun as to overcome it, right? Then they feel like, oh, the this warning that I've been told that, you know, that even noticing, you know, someone's body can make me a monster, makes me a monster because to notice someone's body is the same as to sexually assault or rape them, you know, which is literally a teaching that many men receive. Um, you know, come to hate themselves and to feel themselves to be sort of um, a, a monstrous beings, right? Um, you know, like there are all kinds of ways in which these, again, overly simplistic ideas can um, can box us in to, to, to ways of looking at ourselves and others that are deeply, deeply, deeply damaging. And I know lots of men who are really struggling, right? having grown up in purity culture. Um, you know, non-binary folks and queer folks, especially back when I was growing up in evangelicalism, were just utterly invisible, right, w within the teachings of purity culture. I think that that's becoming less true today. But, um, but you know, that invisibility was a double taboo, right? You know, you are, you are so off base that we can't even speak about you, mm. right? Um, you know, that that could create like an even deeper level of shame and um, and, and self, you know, doubt. Right. Um, you know, so I mean, and, and but, you know, even when people are talked about, you know, it, it's in negative terms. Right. So then you're doubly shamed. Not only are you, you know, not able to turn off being attracted to people, but you're attracted to the quote unquote wrong people, right? You know, so, you know, there's even more layers of, of taboo and intersectional marginalization that comes into play. Um, so, you know, all of these things are, all of these things are connected to one another, right? You know, purity culture, purity culture is, is either, uh, you know, gigantic, or, you know, you can, define it a little bit more tightly and then say it comes within a gigantic system of intersectional shamings and <laughs> and and um and overly simplistic um binaries and you know and they all intersect you know so so if you if you have many identities that are not considered to be um right or good or the best or what have you um, you know, you're going to feel even more like you are not worthy, pure, good, Christian, all those things, all those binaries that fit together in a neat, in a neat little stack. Mm. Your book was released in 2018. So it's been a few years since the release and obviously since you writing it and conducting all of your interviews and research. I'm curious if you would be open to sharing a little bit about your personal faith journey and like what it's looked like since the book has come out. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll gosh, it's, I'm trying to think how I can make it not a really long answer. 
Um, I'm going to try to do this briefly. So I, you know, I was raised in the evangelical church. And when I ended up leaving evangelicalism in my early 20s, I, I still believed the binary that if you didn't believe in this particular way, that you weren't Christian, you had no access to God, you know, all of the stuff that came you know, with being on the outside of the in circle that I had just left, um, which means that I even, you know, I remember I still, I still felt God and I still felt, you know, I still was in the habit of praying. And yet I remember saying to God, sorry, God, I'm not allowed to pray to you now. Right. So hold that thought. Right. You know, like I really felt myself not allowed to have access to all these things that I was told I didn't have access to if I wasn't part of the in crowd mm. of evangelicals. And it took time for me to, first of all, reclaim my access and my belief to God um, or and in to and in God. And, you know, that that came, I would say, much, much, much more quickly than the reckoning that um, that I ended up having with religion. So, you know, there were probably, it was probably about a good decade that, um, that I was very comfortable with a very strong spiritual life, um, and was like, do not put me in a church. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, when I first went into a church, the first, or, or not entered a church, but first sort of like voluntarily decided to keep showing up to a church, um, was when I was invited to join a gospel choir at a church that I just had fallen in love with their gospel choir. And I was like, oh man, all right, I'm going to do the church thing so I can do this in gospel choir. Um, you know, and at the time, believe it or not, I was actually working in religion. Not only was I studying purity culture and, and you know, interviewing people for what would eventually come my book and sort of studying religion. I had studied religion in grad school and so on and so forth, but I was actually working in a foundation that, um, that worked at the intersection of faith and feminism. So I was working in religion and I was surrounded by religion and I was working, you know, I, my day job was to, you know, I got paid to, you know, uh, help create more inclusive spaces within church, you know, and other religious settings as well. Um, but I didn't feel comfortable in a church. Uh, and, and then when I joined that gospel choir, you know, it really started to break down some of those walls. And I started to see the way in which I could, with this group of people who defined Christianity very differently than the folks I grew up with, I could be my full self and I could have this incredible praise experience that I used to love in church. And I could, you know, have this community that, you know, I used to love in church and all these things, right? Like I still had access not only to God, but to religion. And that was a kind of a game changer for me to realize that I could still have access to those things. I could still have a positive experience, you know, in that space and not have it look the way that you look. Um, you know, over the years, you know, I, when the book came out, I was um, still working, you know, on behalf of uh, religious communities a lot. 
Um, and, you know, I've done, you know, I was kind of like church hopping, if you will, <laughs> to, use, to use evangelical language. Um, you know, and since the book has come out, and I've done a lot of work in churches since the book came out, I've actually done a lot of purity culture story exchanges in churches and so on. Um, you know, but but once the once the pandemic hit, and I couldn't do those purity culture story exchanges in churches, and you know my board membership and in doing a lot of church reform um, ended and just like that kind of right around the the pandemic, I started to pull back from active engagement with religious spaces again, and I found myself at this moment not feeling drawn to go into church again, right? Um, but I, but I appreciate that I, I feel that I can, <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like the right kind of church setting doesn't feel triggering to me. It doesn't feel like I'm not allowed to go to according to some old set of rules that I learned growing up. Um, you know, but, but my relationship God remains, you know, sort of unmoved by my, um, you know, going or not going to church. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting also that even once you feel like you want to access a religious community, it can be hard to find one that feels accepting or feels authentic to how you believe religion now after kind of going deconstructing. For sure. Yeah. Well, and then also having grown up in evangelicalism, you know, like I like a little charisma, you know. I, you know, I, I, am not a, I'm not a, like an organ church kind of gal. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and so, you know, finding a church that has kind of the culture that I like, um, and that, and that also a place in which I can be myself, uh, it's not always easy enough. Yeah. Okay, so for this episode, we put a poll on Instagram for students in our Point Loma community to ask questions about purity culture, about sexual shame, um, so that you could answer them. And so we chose three, and we could maybe do like, not like a speed round, but like a little jumping around of these questions. Um, So the first listener question is, how do you reject purity culture without doing a pendulum swing in the opposite direction by devaluing sex? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talked a little bit about the values-based sexuality education and and I, you know, I really think that there's something there. I think that, you know, with, with um, respect to your listener, of course, you know, the idea that we only have two ends to choose from, right? To either value sex and and have and be part of purity culture or to devalue sex, right? Like that's the story of purity culture. Like I said, we didn't get just one story in purity culture, we got two stories, either this or that, right? And in reality, you know, the complexities of sexuality are countless, <laughs> you know? So there are so many ways <laughs> that somebody can reject purity culture, you know, with devaluing sex, right? Um, you know, there are many ways in which people are making choices around sex and sexuality that are are not tied to other people's perceptions of their worth that still value sex. I would say that, you know, as long as 
as long as somebody is making a choice about sex and sexuality that is rooted in their own authentic, um, you know, sense of sense of what they want, sense of who they are, sense of what they need, sense of their, you know, all of those things, as opposed to an internalized fear that they may or may not recognize that if they don't look at it this way, that they will be, or people will think that they are not good enough. Um, you know, it's a good decision. So somebody, somebody might still choose not to have sex before marriage and not be part of purity culture, but the motivation for it, you know, could be out of a, a, a very particular self-motivated perspective on why they're making that choice. I'm like, great, that choice is great for you, right? If you can stand by it and really believe that it is yours and has, and it's not about somebody else, um, you know, uh, somebody else's story that might come back to haunt you because you've internalized it as your own. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? I feel like I'm talking yeah. a little bit in a circle. Yeah. Yeah. Autonomy <laughs> over, over the why behind the decision, not just making Exactly. It. Yeah. And I, and I think it's tricky because, and I think the reason that I felt like I might be talking in circles a little bit is because it's tricky because at a certain stage in life, you know, especially soon after, you know, while we're still in purity culture or soon after leaving purity culture, especially we, you know, we, we think things are ours that aren't, mm. um, or we have internalized them and they've become ours, but they didn't grow out of us. Mm. And those things we might not recognize until time passes and we start to live into them they're how problematic problematic they are in our lives um you know and then have to question them so so it's it's difficult it's difficult really to say so that's why we need these values because you know you might make one decision one day according to that value and then as you learn and grow and understand yourself and your world and so on and so forth you might be faced with the same decision another day in a different context or moment in your life and a different person of who you are now and make a different decision you know and the values allow you to do that they allow you to grow and they allow you to to begin to understand yourself more and more over time and understand the world um and and a whole lot more okay our next question the question is how might purity culture contribute to or enable acts of sexual violence purity culture teaches people to um, make decisions based on what based on other people's comfort, particularly those of us who were raised as girls, we learned to make sure that other people are comfortable and that we don't upset them and that we don't um, you know cause any problems and so on and so forth. And it makes us highly vulnerable. It makes us highly vulnerable in lots of areas. And one of the areas in which it makes us highly vulnerable is it makes us highly vulnerable to sexual threat. Um, we might have a gut feeling that something feels wrong, but we're telling ourselves, don't be a jerk. I'm sure they're a nice person. I'm sure they're, oh, I'm sure this is fine. We don't trust ourselves. We learn not to trust ourselves, right? We learned that if it comes from us, it's not to be trusted. Um, so we shut that down. 
So that's, I think, something that I just wanted to make sure that I said, right? There is an enabling that happens via the shutting down of the internal compass that tells us that we're in danger sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and now um, I'll speak a little bit. There is so much I could say on this topic because it's so complex, but, I, but I'd be happy to speak to what you said about what to do if you've got someone who's going through this. I mean, the first thing is, um, a lot of people don't know they're going through it. Um, purity culture also teaches us um, such a skewed perce uh, perception of sexual violence that a lot of people who have, have experienced sexual violence, but they won't name it as such um, for a very, very, very long time, if ever. And so one of the things that I, I guess I would say is if you have a friend whose personality is suddenly changed, right? who's clearly going through something pretty massive, but they're not telling you what, right? You know, to, to, you know, going back to what we talked about before, ask questions, right? You know, hey, what, hey, what's going on? I've been noticing you've seemed, you've seemed kind of withdrawn recently, you know, like whatever it is, right? Um, no judgment, no shaming, who knows what happened, right? You know, not saying that everybody's sadness is tied to, to this, but, but there is a, um, an isolation that often happens afterward when you grow up within a culture that doesn't talk about this. Um, and there's a, a, um, a kind of erasure, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, th I think the first thing you can do is be somebody who someone confides in. Um, and if someone does confide in you, um, the first thing you can do is believe them. Believe them. Just believe them right? Believe them and do not shame them. Do not blame them. Do not, what were you wearing? Do not, why were you there at that time? Do not, you know, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way. Do not, any of that, right? Like all you got to do is just believe them. Listen and believe. Mm -hmm. And if you can't go any further than that, that's enough. Our last question from our listener is, how would you encourage women to fight sexual shame on a Christian college campus? Well, I love that you're doing a podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the number one thing we can do is we can just sort of call it out and acknowledge it and, you know, call a spade a spade and have conversations, have, you know, authentic, real conversations, you know. Um, and, and that's what you're doing. So I, I think, you know, everyone has different platforms. Everyone has different, um, you know, access points. You know, someone might just be calling it out with their roommate, you know, who, you know, is shaming themselves. And you might say like, hey, you don't have to beat yourself up. Like, let's talk about this, right? You know, and, and other people, you know, have access to a podcast like you, you know, so, you know, to each to each our own, right? But, um, but, but, you know, we can all, we can all in our own way um, start to dismantle these really harmful, harmful ideologies. Well, awesome. thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on and thank you for having the courage to have this conversation. Hey, hey, thanks for sticking around till the end of this episode and for supporting us. Look out for our last episode of the year on emotional intelligence and how to harness it. Until then, stay safe and take care.
This podcast would not be made possible without the Office of Multicultural and International Student Services at Point Loma Nazarene University. It was hosted and executively produced by Sarah Gleason. It was written and researched by Annika Barr. The promotions and graphics were created by Michaela Norwood.